Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple of months off the podcast for work. As soon as he's back, we'll jump right back into the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa's third chapter, In a Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm picking up where I left off last time, going through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, I covered Book 4, Chapter 6 of The Lord of the Rings, The Forbidden Pool, in which Frodo and Faramir were just getting to be friends before Gollum showed up to ruin everything. This week, we're going to be covering Book 4, Chapter 7, Journey at the Crossroads, as well as part of Book 4, Chapter 8, The Stairs of Kirith Ungol. And then next week, we're going to be finishing up Book 4, Chapter 8. So here we go, let's jump back in to The Lord of the Rings. As we've gone through the chapters in which the hobbits are spending time with Faramir, I've been comparing it to the Fellowship's journey through Lothlorien back in Book 2. And that holds up here as well. When the hobbits part from Faramir, it's the equivalent of their farewell to Lothlorien. It's less elaborate, less visually dazzling, but the parallels are still there. Men and elves walk the same path, they just do it at a different pace. The men give the hobbits walking sticks instead of vials of light, but like Sam's rope from Lothlorien, there's subtle magic at work here. These sticks come from beloved trees, an important symbol in the Lord of the Rings, especially for the men of Numenor. And they have a virtue laid on them, Faramir says, of finding and returning. Full circle, the story of life, there and back again. It's something Faramir hopes the shadow cannot take away. Frodo links it to Elrond's words when the Fellowship set out, that evil would be turned to great good, which hints at Boromir as well, a redemption occurring in the background. But that connection only makes it more painful to part, such sweet sorrow, and the road ahead is uncertain, at best. Faramir's scouts report that the land is empty. On one hand, that's reassuring, it's less chance the hobbits will be caught. On the other hand, it's not like Sauron has surrendered Ithilien out of the kindness of his heart. He's planning something. Faramir describes the atmosphere as a waiting silence, a breath before a storm, saying that the hobbits can walk in daylight only while the land dreams in a false peace. Sooner or later, we'll have to wake up. When Faramir says farewell, he vanishes so quickly back into the woods that Tolkien writes it's like a dream has passed. It makes the sense of time passing even more acute. We're running out of time. Everything is coming together for the conclusion. So the hobbits better hurry. Same rule applies at the climax of the story, when the armies of men act as a diversion to draw the orcs out of Mordor, a dreadful chance for the sun to rise above the shadow, as Faramir puts it. As the hobbits look east, Tolkien writes, the light through the trees makes it look like the world ends out there, the ground giving way, which is exactly what it will feel like if Sauron wins. Faramir warns the hobbits not to drink out of any water flowing from the Morgul Vale. It's a callback to The Hobbit, in which the dwarves weren't supposed to drink water in Mirkwood, but that would only put you to sleep. This would probably be worse. It might infect you with the spirit of Mordor, turning you into something like the Ringwraiths who rule that valley. Or like Gollum. And Gollum is the other reason all of this is so uneasy. His life has been spared, but there's a new tension between him and the Hobbits. He scorns the courteous farewell, and openly despises the men. Frodo is angry because they showed Gollum mercy, but it doesn't seem like mercy from Gollum's perspective. He wasn't aware that his life was in danger until he was a prisoner, so it feels like he was just kidnapped and interrogated for no good reason. Gollum claims he forgives everyone, including Frodo, but he doesn't. 
The betrayal rankles, and Tolkien wants us to understand why, that it's not just Gollum being unreasonable as Sam might think about it. War and the Ring lead us into conflict more than we would have on our own. It's about context as well as the nature of any given individual. The hobbits eat, Gollum doesn't. The hobbits rest, Gollum slips away to do who knows what. We already feel trepidation going into this part of the story because of Faramir's warnings and because Gollum had mentioned that she, that mysterious she he was talking about a while back. And that trepidation is reflected by the atmosphere. The air is getting heavier, like they're walking through a thundercloud about to burst. And that applies not only to Sauron, but to Gollum, the mini-Sauron. There are beautiful trees out here still, beautiful flowers. We're still in the country of Athelion, but they're all spread apart out in the open. And that scares Gollum. He can't appreciate such things anymore, and no one can when the great eye is watching. They're wandering a metaphorical border as well as a literal one, the border right inside themselves, the human heart in conflict with itself, just like Gollum's two halves. Gondor glows, Mordor is darkness. The road follows the river, the path of story with a stony voice down into chill waters, as Tolkien writes. There's no turning back now, no exit. Sunset doesn't even touch them here. It's past the memory of the sun. Frodo can see the tops of towers in the distance, but they look broken and floating on a sea as if unstable. All towers could be about to fall, their foundations ripped up in the coming storm. It's an evil feeling in the air and the water. The stream has a wicked voice, Tolkien writes. Nothing overtly threatens our heroes in this chapter. It's all under the surface, creating suspense. This time, it's Gollum who sleeps while the hobbits don't watching him to see what might emerge. There's a literal path through the darkness ahead that he understands better than they do, where the shadow eats up the stars, tainting the moonlight, fitting the Tower of the Moon we're about to see in Minas Morgul. Day doesn't even come, just a red glow that is not the sun, but Sauron, who basically thinks of himself as a replacement for the sun. And there's great word choices here to highlight the bleak, sickly horror of it all, as with the Black Gate. Tumbled lands, frowning mountains, jagged, menacing. We're entering a state of permanent night, like a high fantasy version of nuclear winter, where Sauron sucks the land and sky dry. And now the hobbits sleep and Gollum wanders off. They keep trading places. Sam dreams of home, a classic dream where you're not sure what it is you're doing or why, but you just know that it's very important. In the dream, Sam is getting rid of weeds in his garden, and that's foreshadowing for the scouring of the Shire, as well as a bittersweet connection to the smoking circle we saw at Isengard, among the other remaining members of the Fellowship. Sam wakes up to a nightmare. It's dark in the daytime. Sauron is making his war on nature. There's a hideous sound of thumping and drumming that the hobbits hear in the air. It's like his heartbeat is all around them. As for Gollum, he's run off. Sam says, that's just like Gollum. But Frodo reminds him of the dead marshes when Gollum could have abandoned them but didn't help them out. Frodo is afraid of the valley they're entering into, the valley of the shadow of death, and he needs something to hold on to. As he'll say in book six, he's losing the memory of the Shire. He thinks it's all over. But where there's life, Sam tells him, there's hope. Could be the tagline for the Lord of the Rings right there. There's never any reason to despair, because as long as you have a mind and heart to despair with, you're alive and should keep going. Of course, you need food, you need fuel, and Sam becomes the cook of the Fellowship again, always trying to give Frodo a hot home-cooked meal. It's important to keep those rituals going because those rituals are how we understand ourselves in time. Losing time means losing all structure, which is exactly what Sauron wants. Sam can only persist in calling this the afternoon, 
But what does that mean without the sun? It's featureless, colorless, even shadowless without it. It's stifling without being warm, the oppression of fire without its life-giving properties. Time drags on interminably. This is life under the enemy. There's just nothing. Nothing at all. It's not even tea time in decent places, Sam says, but as Gollum replies, this isn't a decent place. It's where decency goes to die, including for him. He claws Frodo to make him move forward, getting ahead of himself a little there, revealing his desperation. Frodo doesn't resist, though, and they vanish into the gloom. Now they arrive at the crossroads, and the crossroads, again, are metaphorical as well as literal. It's a heart of the borderlands, a domain of choice. Who will you be? Where do you belong? There's the road to the Black Gate, from whence they came. There's the road down south, where the Southrons came from. And there's the road back to us, Gilead, where Faramir is waiting. The road ahead leads into darkness, the unknown of the future. But then the dread is broken by a shining light glowing on Sam's face, showing how he's a spark of hope. It comes from the sun sinking behind them, down in the west like old Numenor falling into the sea. The light lingers just for a minute to show them an image of the fall of man, a broken king like Ozymandias, beheaded and bespoiled by the orcs, leaving the symbols of Sauron all over it. Time has also eaten away at it, Tolkien writes. It would have done that even if the orcs had never been there. But life grows on his head, highlighted now by the sun. Plants growing, responding to the light. The cycle of nature, the return of the king. Time takes everything away. But, as Frodo says, that also means the conquests of the enemy can't last forever. The trees at the crossroads are gaunt and broken on top like the towers of Minas Morgul, but the roots are strong and won't be torn up by the storm. Again, where there's life, there's hope. There's a brief flash of light before night descends and the moment fades. As the next chapter begins, Gollum is tugging on Frodo's cloak and telling him to hurry the fuck up. And there's a great tonal mixture here, where Gollum is genuinely afraid of getting caught by the ringwraiths, but he's also trying to hurry the hobbits along into his trap. We saw that same combination at Hanatha Noon, where Gollum was at the mercy of Faramir's men and so looked pitiful and pathetic, but Tolkien told us that he was also shielding his malice. Gollum is simultaneously a victim and a perpetrator, and it's difficult to pry the two apart because, as Sam saw, they're literally talking to each other. As Tolkien writes, Frodo is allowing Gollum to pull him away from the west and into the east, where the darkness awaits. That's Frodo's mission, but it also represents Gollum's corruption. Gollum is making the destruction of the ring possible, but he's also demonstrating how difficult it is to do that because of the hold it has on you. The environment again reflects this struggle, inner and outer worlds coming together. The imagery shifts from the bittersweet twilight of the crossroads to, quote, black and forbidding rocks, darker even than the night sky gathering all around them. And Frodo's burden is growing commensurately. He's leaving behind the last gasp of both elves and men. He's all alone with the ring. And so they behold Minas Morgul, the nightmare city, the lair of the ringwraiths, and one of the most terrifying locations in all of Middle-earth. And Tolkien wanted to make it scary. There's a great bit from his writings reprinted in The History of Middle-earth, where he wrote, Minas Morgul must be made more horrible. The usual goblin stuff is not good enough here. No, Minas Morgul has to be metal. Minas Morgul has to be a place of putrefaction, a monument to the fall. And a lot of the horror comes from the knowledge that this used to be a bright and beautiful place. It's the horror of occupation, which is something that Tolkien's heroes don't do. 
We don't see them take over Mordor and set up their own kingdom there. That's what Boromir thought about doing, and that's part of the reason Boromir became a villain. As far as the inspirations for Minas Morgul go, I've heard it compared to Istanbul slash Constantinople, since that also changed hands and changed names. There's the moon symbol in common, and the orientation of the moon symbol was changed when the Ottomans took Constantinople and renamed it Istanbul. So I, I can see the parallels at work there. In universe, what's important about Minas Morgul is that it's connected to the history of the corruption of Gondor. This is where the last king of Gondor died, taunted into single combat by the Witch King, betrayed by his own chivalry and pride, just like Boromir. This is also where Sauron got his Palantir, the seeing stone he used to corrupt Saruman, as we know, and Denethor, as we're going to find out in Book 5. So you see how important this city really is to the overall themes and character arcs of the story. In terms of other locations within the world, Minas Morgul is very reminiscent of Moria and also the Black Gate that we saw earlier in Book 4. Speaking of which, the first third of Book 4, Emmy Muiel, The Dead Marshes, The Black Gate, that was all about otherworldly obstacles in abstract dreamlike settings. And we're returning to that now after the more mundane, grounded middle section of the book with Faramir. Minas Morgul has oral imagery in common with Moria and The Black Gate. The city's gate is described repeatedly as a mouth. It's a hell mouth, a portal to the underworld, trying to swallow you whole. In the history of Middle-earth, it's described as a gate shaped like a gaping mouth, with teeth and a window like an eye on each side. And eyes are very important here as well as mouths. This scene is all about the horror of being watched. Countless black holes, Tolkien writes, looking inward to emptiness, dominate the tower. And the top of the tower is moving. A huge ghostly head leering into the night, Tolkien writes. The city itself is alive, a great primeval beast of stone. The light is imprisoned within it, the moon held hostage. It's a cosmic war on creation itself. And I love how Tolkien describes this, writing, It was a corpse light that illuminated nothing. That's such influential horror imagery. You can see that all over Stephen King, just to name one. Gollum is the one who keeps them moving because he's used to that. This is how he feels every day about all of the world. You might expect nothing to be growing in a place like this, but there are flowers. Spooky flowers. They're luminous like the city, but horrible like it too. And they smell like a slaughterhouse. Minas Morgul is overripe. The fruitful beauty of Numenor left to rot. In Minas Tirith, the tree is dead. In Minas Morgul, the plants remain, but they've been corrupted, just like the former humans who run this town. Tolkien describes the flowers as dreamlike, as though our heroes have stumbled into a nightmare. And just like in nightmares, everything is transformed, made horrible. The statues turn corrupt and loathsome. Something's wrong with the water. The vapor seems to seep into Frodo's mind. It's like the hypnosis in the Old Forest or the Barrow Downs in Book 1, only worse, much worse. It pulls Frodo on to cross the bridge into death. And for once, Sam and Gollum agree. Fuck that. We're not going in there. That's as bad as rushing the Black Gate would have been. It's the ring calling out to the sleepless intelligence inside that tower. The ring drags at Frodo as they turn him back. It's carrying weight. It's like its own source of gravity. The light is seductive in its own way, like a moth calling to a flame. Frodo passes a hand across his brow. That's where he always feels Sauron, like a third eye. He turns aside from the corrupted light and into pure darkness. The only light as they climb is from Gollum's eyes, a perfectly creepy image. 
He's watching them, just like the tower. And Tolkien writes that it's not clear whether the tower light is reflected in his eyes or whether it's an answering light from within him. Gollum is taking them away from the Nightmare City, but into a place nearly as bad. The seductive stink of the city fades as they climb, but they quickly start to get tired instead. Again, this is a more intense version of ideas Tolkien has played with before, the dwarves in Mirkwood back in The Hobbit. It's the weight of the ring writ large, like the darkness is a sea they're drowning in. It's like they're climbing into outer space. Even as the hobbits grow weaker entering Mordor, the ring grows more powerful. After all, it's coming home. That's why I was trying to drag them into the city, to be discovered by the servants of its lord and master. Frodo can't bear the burden for long. It's more than weariness, he thinks. It's like a spell being cast on him. If the ring can't force them into the city, it can slow them down long enough for them to get seen. Again, it's all about the horror of being seen. Gollum knows they'll be seen by a worse eye than the yellow face or the white face if they stay around here. Eyes, he says. Eyes can see us. But it's even worse than that. In one of the great, epic, heavy metal, high fantasy images for which Tolkien was famous, Mordor fully wakes up from its long slumber and declares war on the rest of the world. The earth shakes, and a geyser of red bursts forth from behind the mountains, like a lightning bolt striking in reverse. Sauron is putting the heavens on notice. Middle-earth is mine, for good this time. His infernal light stains the clouds and makes the mountains stand out like knives, as Tolkien writes, like the land itself is arming for battle. And Minas Morgul answered, Tolkien writes, a signal being given, a dreadful mirror to the fire signals between Gondor and Rohan. Blue flames leap up from the city to match the red ones, and then the hobbits hear it. The noise from inside. So far we haven't gotten any sense of their being anyone inside Minas Morgul. The city itself seemed alive, a blight on the world from which the disease in Athelion spread. But now it gets a little less abstract. We hear the residents of the city before we see them. Shrieks and moans, the noise of the damned. Once again, the gate is described like a mouth, but nothing is going in. Something is coming out, like Sauron's tongue, an army all in black like a spreading shadow. Ordered shadows, Tolkien writes, which really sums it all up. A host of, quote, dead silence sent to swallow up the light. Everything ordered by a controlling intelligence. No hope of freedom left. Even Saruman's Urukai cheered and jeered at Helm's Deep. They seem to have, you know, personalities. This is different. It's a smothering tide. A storm that has burst, as Frodo says, describing the army in terms of the natural world. Really, it's come to replace nature. Fulfilling the promise Saruman could only dream about up in his tower. This is the real deal. And we'll talk more about that army, who's leading it, and how Frodo gets away from him next week. So every week I've been wrapping up these Lord of the Rings episodes by talking a little bit about the movie adaptations from Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago and how they handled each stretch of the material. The extended edition of The Return of the King includes the scene with the king's statue. It's very heartfelt and well done, reminding me of Wuxia movies with the lighting effect. But the crowning glory of this part of the movie is Minas Morgul, brought vividly to life as an incredible miniature that looks like Dracula's castle grown into an entire city. The sickly green light, the architecture unfurling out from the center tower like bat wings or spider legs. 
It looks somewhat like the Black Gate from Two Towers. There's a consistent sense of design here, but it's more rotted and nightmarish. You can really see the filmmaker's horror chops, not only in the leering grotesque statues, but in the Dutch angles used to show us those statues, capturing Frodo's queasy seasick feeling. Elijah Wood has to spend a lot of Return of the King looking hypnotized, and he really sells the helplessness in his eyes and the staggering possessed walk. The soundtrack quiets down to a dull throbbing, the blood in his veins, the otherworldly whisper in his ears, and then it all erupts, more volcanic even than the books. And the movie can just cut away to Pippin and Gandalf, watching it at Minas Tirith, really linking the storylines together as Return of the King ramps up. It's the very familiar sight of a laser shooting into the sky, but it's more frightening and tangible than the one you see in pretty much every blockbuster now. It's a cathartic burst of energy, and the movie sustains that pace for most of the rest of its running time, as I'll be talking about more as we go through the end of Book 4 and into Books 5 and 6. That's going to wrap us up for The Lord of the Rings this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Podbean, wherever you listen to our podcast. You can check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and many more benefits. You can follow us at ASOIAF on Twitter, or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. And you can follow me at PoorQuentin on Twitter. So next week, we're going to be wrapping things up with Book 4, Chapter 8 of The Lord of the Rings. And then we're going to be carrying on to Book 4, Chapters 9 and 10. We're going to wrap those up in one big episode with a special guest. Going to probably do one or two more guest episodes after that, and then go ahead with Book 5 of The Lord of the Rings and see how far I get into that before Jeff returns to the podcast. So thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week for more Lord of the Rings.